I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Glick. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 17th, 2018. Speaking of April 17th, coming up, an antidote to tax filing, science. Granted, it's about cancer, maybe not exactly an antidote. We'll offer two interviews, two guests. Our first will be Dr. James DeGregory. He's a biochemist and director of the University of Colorado Cancer Center. He'll discuss his new book, which offers a new understanding of how cancer evolves inside us. Think Darwin. And then we'll speak with Dr. Lisa McKenzie, a public health expert from the Colorado School of Public Health. She recently co-authored a sobering study about the human health effects of living close to oil and gas operations in Colorado. Let's jump right into our first interview. So it may come as no surprise that cancer afflicts old people more than the young. Conventional wisdom has held we get cancer with age largely because we accumulate lots of genetic mutations over the many years, and it's those mutations that cause cancer. A new theory challenges that wisdom. It argues that cancer is as much a disease of evolution as it is of mutation. Mutated cells outcompete healthy ones in the ecosystem of the body's tissues. Our guest today is a proponent of this emerging approach to cancer biology. Dr. James DeGregory is Deputy Director of University of Colorado Cancer Center, and he's a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Genetics. His new book is called Adaptive Oncogenesis, A New Understanding of How Cancer Evolves Inside Us. It views the body through an evolutionary lens as an ecosystem in which populations of cells compete and the cells best adapted to their surroundings survive. Dr. DeGregory joins us via phone from his office in Aurora. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much. So first I want you to lay out this conventional wisdom about cancer, in fact, evolves in us. So we can get a, I can get a better sense of how, how this new approach is different. So the, the conventional way of looking at cancer, particularly as associated with aging, or even as associated with you know, insults like smoking, is that it's limited by the occurrence of the mutations. So we get more cancer late in life by this thinking because there's been more time to get those mutations. Um, and so 90% of all cancers happen after the age of 50. 90%? So it is the num- 90%, yeah, happen after the age of 50. So it's the, the number one sort of um, factor that would be, you know, that would indicate your risk of cancer is actually old age. Of course, you know, we actually can control our overall risk by, by, for example, not smoking and exercise and so forth. But what those tend to do is they actually have the greatest effect even at the older ages. So even smokers who get lung cancer are mostly at older ages. So that, the, that view is pretty much that, you know, the smoking causes mutations, which then cause the cancer. And even not smoking. So it's the mutations themselves over time that accumulate. Right. So and that's cause the, the cancer. Yeah, that's the conventional way of thinking about it. And I should mention that, you know, the, the theory, the adaptive oncogenesis theory, still posits that the, you do need the mutations to cause cancer. So they are still required to get the cancer. But we look at it more that the, the, the predominant effect of old age or even of smoking is that it's changing tissues. So this is very similar to how evolution works. So evolution actually is not this sort of progressive, continuous improvement in species like a lot of people will see it. It's actually basically species and populations of animals or plants or whatever adapting to their environments. And if the environment is constant, like it is, can be you know, for even millions of years on Earth, 
when that environment is constant, actually species tend to change very little because they're already well adapted to their environment. So and how it, is it, though, that the tissues, you're saying this whole right. microenvironment, so-called the tissues around all the cells or that make up the cells, they themselves degrade over time? It kind yeah, of seems so axiomatic on the one hand, but well, it's it, different it, from the mutation theory. Right. right. So it's basically, you know, you, we first have to sort of consider that we evolved to not get cancer. And we also evolved to basically stay robust and healthy. But we only evolved to do that for long enough to be reproductively successful. Oh. So for most of our evolutionary history, there weren't a whole lot of 60 and 70 year olds around. And so basically, you can sort of think about it as sort of an investor. You're going to invest in body maintenance by you, I mean natural selection in this case, invested in body maintenance to the point that it maximized reproductive success and no more. And so that's, you know, that's why, for example, we don't really age in a linear fashion. Mm. You're, the amount that you age between 20 and 40 years of age is much less than the amount that you're going to age between 50 and 70 years Tell of age. Tell me about it. Exactly. We're all experiencing that. So, um, so and the reason that we, you know, you know, even the common phrase, we go downhill, you know, after 40 or 50. Right. The reason we go downhill is that's actually not that natural selection has programmed us to be eliminated. It's the absence of natural selection to maintain us. We were probably more, uh, we were likely to have already reproduced at that point, if at all. And so any sort of contribution would have already been made because death by predator, cold, hunger, disease, was a far more likely outcome for most of our evolutionary history. So, you know, our current circumstances are not the circumstances that we evolved under. Our current circumstances are the circumstances for the last century or so, which is just a few generations. So it sounds like you're sort of offering this evolutionary approach to the mutation yeah. Theory, so it's not different from that, but it's just looking at a more holistic body. Yeah, I would say approach. it's an extension of the theory. So it's basically, you know, we're still saying you need the mutations. Just like, for example, if a if a fly adapts to a new circumstance, or to give an example that I think people can appreciate, is antibiotic resistance of bacteria. The you need the mutation that causes antibiotic resistance to get antibiotic resistant mutation, uh, uh, you know, antibiotic resistant uh, bacteria in your gut. But it's not the mutation that's the limiting factor. The limiting factor is really the environment. In this case, it's the antibiotics that are applied. So it's the antibiotics that provide that selective pressure for that mutation to expand out. Otherwise, in the absence of antibiotics, the status quo, meaning non-antibiotic resistant bacteria, are the favored type. So it kind of begs the question then, what are the implications, if they're any different now, yeah. for prevention and treatment of cancers. So basically, I think the implications are pretty large because what we're basically saying is that it's not, you know, when you're young, the reason we tend to not get cancer when we're young and healthy, particularly if you have a healthy lifestyle, is because in our healthy young tissues, our, our stem cells and the, you know, the cells that could form cancers are basically already operating semi-optimally. They're doing really well. So change tends to be bad. So you could get an oncogenic mutation, a cancer-causing mutation, in one of your stem cells when you're young and, let's say, in your lung, and that mutation's not likely to be advantageous. So it's not likely to contribute to cancer. So the youthful, healthy tissue favors the what I like to call the evolved type of stem cell, the type of stem cell that's meant to be there. 
And, and if you smoke, for example, you're now changing that environment. So one, smoking does cause more mutations, so I'm not taking away that. But now those mutations are more likely to be adaptive. And you can imagine that uh, the type of cell that's going to adapt to a smoke-damaged landscape is not the type of cell that you want in your body. It, this is sort of like the sort of same concept of, you know, how do we avoid terrorism or crime? Hmm. And sort of the, 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 the macho way is, okay, let's go in and kill all the criminals and terrorists. And, so and that's, that's the sort of how, chemotherapy blast that's the of the chemotherapy past. blast. You yeah. got it, absolutely. But the sort of more long-term way, and actually I think the, the more effective way is, let's go in and change environments. Let's go in and fix the inner city, provide opportunities. Hmm. And now I'm, of course, getting off topic, but that's the sort of analogy is that we need to come up with ways to improve the health of our tissues so that the cancer type is not the favored type. And that we want to favor the healthy lifestyle for ourselves. And the best way to do that is by sculpting environments that are most healthy. As in exercise, eat good food, don't smoke, exactly. same old things that exactly. many of us don't listen to but know is exactly. good Exactly. And so in some ways it's what we already know, but I think that it can go beyond that because even when we think uh. of therapies, if we think of therapies as how hard can we hit the cancer cell mm. and sort of ignore what you're doing to the tissue landscape, you're, you're basically creating, you're now creating an environment in the tissue where the, the cancer that comes back is going to be a far worse beast than the, even the cancer that was initially there. And clinicians know this well, that a relapse cancer is way harder to treat than the initial cancer. And I think the reason for that is, at least in good measure, because we've created such a nasty environment that the only type of cancer cell that can survive in that new environment is a really aggressive, beastie cancer. Wow. So it sounds kind of crude, but yeah. in a way it seems miraculous to me that most of us over 50, say, don't have cancer. I mean, many yeah. of us probably do inside, but it hasn't manifested yet. But let's just say we don't have cancer that's manifested yet. Conversely, why so many, even if it's a small percent, but of young people do? Yeah, no, it's, I think there's a couple explanations for that. First off, we have to realize that evolution's not perfect. So evolution minimizes risk. It doesn't eliminate them. And so a, a young person, for example, has a roughly 1 in 700 chance of a, a child has a 1 in 700 chance of getting a childhood cancer. Mm. And that's, you know, that's too high. We would love that to be zero. But if you compare that to the competing risk for most of our evolutionary history, death by infection, starvation, predator, you know, basically, you know, over half of newborns did not make it to, you know, probably be 10 years old. Right, for many other for reasons. Other reasons. Yeah. So you can imagine that investment in evolution to, to avoid cancer has already worked quite well. In other words, it's a minor risk compared to other risks. But even on top of that, there is evidence that, that childhood cancers are much frequent in the modern world. And we don't, I mean, and I shouldn't say modern because obviously the entire world is modern, but I'd say in the developed world. So the developed world, you know, where conditions are more hygienic, when we have very different sort of exposures to what we evolved in. So in some ways, it's sort of an evolutionary disconnect from our much more ancient genes. Our, our genetics haven't had time to catch up. So if that's the case, then some cancers in youth may be the result of, of basically our lack of adaptation to this new world. And that could be exposures that we're experiencing, either, you know, negative ones like chemical exposures uh, or they could be exposures that we really evolved to experience like, like uh, bacteria and different 
uh, microbes that were normally in our environment and would have tuned our system that we're no longer getting exposed to. So there's not a simple solution to that, mm -hmm. but it, it does suggest that, that evolution did do, I think, a very good job of limiting cancer, at least through reproductive years. And some of the exceptions probably can be explained by our, our, the, the conditions that we now find ourselves in. Fascinating. Well, we'll definitely revisit this topic. We're out of time now, so I want to thank you so much, Dr. James DeGregory. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. I always love talking about it. Hope to have you come back. That was Dr. Uh, James DeGregory. He's Deputy Director of University of Colorado Cancer Center, and he's a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Genetics. His new book is called Adaptive Oncogenesis, A New Understanding of How Cancer Evolves Inside Us. <laughs> You're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm Daniel Glick. And I'm Susan Moran. Oil companies have been drilling in Colorado for more than 100 years. Many people living all along the Front Range are familiar with the sights and smells of a few oil rigs operating in fields near their homes in rural areas. Colorado's population has grown rapidly in recent years. New housing developments sprouted in those fields, sometimes right next to pipelines and derricks. That was the case in the tragic Firestone explosion almost exactly one year ago. As Colorado's population took off and spread out, oil and gas operations also expanded rapidly. Over the past decade, the industry unleashed new technology that created large well pads and industrial sites just hundreds of feet away from where people live, play, and send their children to school. State regulators insist that this convergence of people and oil rigs is safe, but many nearby residents and scientists are concerned about the potential health impacts of these drilling operations so close to residential neighborhoods and schools. A new study conducted by Colorado researchers adds some critical evidence to back such concerns. The study found that for people living within 500 feet of a well, the risk of getting cancer over the course of their lifetime is eight times higher than the upper acceptable levels established by the Environmental Protection Agency. The lead author of the study, our guest today, is Dr. Lisa McKenzie. She's an assistant research professor at the Colorado School of Public Health at the University of Colorado Anschutz campus in the Environmental and Occupational Health Department. Dr. McKenzie has been studying the health effects of oil and gas operations for several years. This study follows up on one that she also co-authored, or lead-authored last year. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back to How on Earth. Good morning, Susan and Dan. Good morning. Let's jump uh, right to some of the findings. Give us a snapshot of what you and your colleagues were looking for and tell us what you found. What we found was that people living near oil and natural gas sites may be exposed to hazardous pollutants at levels that could impact their health and also pose cancer risks above what the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency considers to be acceptable. And then just break it down a bit further. So what forms of cancer are you talking about from this study and who are the people most at risk? Uh, in this study, we looked at the total cancer risk, so we did not look at specific types of cancer. And the people most at risk were those living within 500 feet of an oil and gas facility. So we were just uh, hearing about cancer and exposures to chemical uh, products. What kinds of chemicals are emitted during the process of extracting hydrocarbons? And what, and what are some of the dangers that you conclude may be... Uh, uh, come along with those exposures? Okay, the health risks that we observed were uh, mainly driven by uh, benzene, which is a uh, part of the petroleum resource itself. 
and so can be admitted through um, leaking pneumatic devices or as they're uh, bringing product to the surface when they're storing product in tanks and also uh, waste from the process uh, that may have benzene in it. I don't, there are also other hydrocarbons involved, but benzene was the primary um, hazardous air pollutant that was driving these risks. Benzene is a known human carcinogen. It's one of the few chemicals that we actually have pretty good evidence that it causes cancer, and those are primarily from occupational studies where they saw that workers that were exposed to benzene had a higher chance of having leukemias and other blood diseases. And tease out a bit for us what's different about both the approach and the findings of this study versus the one I mentioned in the intro that you lead authored a year ago, and that also took a close look at benzene, some of these other okay. chemicals, and, and, okay. the, and the impact of living so close to oil and gas operations. Yeah. The study we did last year, we actually didn't look at the chemicals. We, what we did is we looked at the proximity of a child to an uh, oil and gas well site and the number of oil and gas sites around them, and we looked at uh, whether or not they were diagnosed with childhood leukemia. And what we found in that study was that children that were diagnosed with a childhood leukemia were more likely to be living in the densest areas of oil and gas sites. However, in that study, we didn't look at concentrations of benzene. We didn't have that kind of information to link to that study. So in your the abstract, in, in the paper itself, uh-huh. it, it, it talks about the facts that the findings indicate that state and federal regulatory policies may not be protective of health for populations residing near oil and gas facilities. Obviously, we talk a lot on the show and in science circles about how science should inform policy. How, How do you feel this kind of study and the study you did before should be taken by the people that are are deciding the regulations for this industry? Well, it is my hope that these that they would consider these studies as they're they're making these decisions, um, both about setback distances and also about emission controls on the wells. Uh, the current setback distances um, weren't designed to protect people's health from air emissions from these sites. And while we're starting to have studies that are looking at concentrations of hazardous air pollutants at various distances from sites and the emission rates of these hazardous air pollutants. There's still a lot that needs to be done before we fully understand um, where a, a, quote, safe distance is to be from these sites as far as air emissions go. And there likely may not be any one uh, answer to that question. And when I'm thinking about policy and policymakers and regulators, I'm not just thinking about policy and regulations on the oil and gas industry, but also thinking about where we're building homes in relation to existing oil and gas wells. And on that front, I mean, it's not just increasingly that oil companies, oil and gas companies are bringing new wells to existing developments, but also new developments are coming in close to and around some of these legacy pumps and wells, and so you're referring to that kind of policy too, that something needs to be done to change, say, not just the oil industry, but maybe real estate industry? Uh, Potentially, yes. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about how epidemiology works. I mean, that's the study of how um, disease moves through human populations. Uh Do you anticipate 
being able to really tell people that problems are happening in real time, or is there kind of a lag time uh, that we should be a little bit concerned about? Well, epidemia, so the study we just released was not an epidemiological study. It was a risk assessment. So in a risk assessment, we say if people were to be exposed to the concentrations of these chemicals in air, here are what some of their health risks might be. In epidemiology, we actually look at patterns of disease in relationship either to proximity to sites or to actually measured or uh, modeled exposure to air pollutants. In epidemiological studies, they take time to do, and particularly in environmental epidemiology, they're usually not causal. So it's very difficult to say that a person was exposed to this and it caused this disease. It takes uh, many years to build up the studies where you get um, a body of studies or body of literature that start to support that causality. And so, for instance, in this study, if I read it correctly, it was that Uh the the data comes from 2014, right? Correct. And so, per Dan's point about a lag, I mean, not only has there been so much more development, so many more people living close to oil and gas wells, I would imagine the, the concentrations of the compounds themselves are quite different. So is this just an inevitable problem in research that you will have that kind of time lag, and then what are the implications for public health for those moving in? Now, there's always going to be uh, some time lag in, in research. Now, there doesn't necessarily have to be a time lag if a monitoring program were set up mm-hmm. where they were monitoring these air pollutants um, near the sites and comparing them to standards. That wouldn't have as big of a lag. But to get to do the research and to have things published in peer-reviewed journals, there's always going to be mm-hmm. um, a lag. Well, speaking of peer review, obviously when you do a study like this, it goes through quite a review process. And then we see that uh, people from the industry, like uh, the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, have taken it upon themselves to uh, actually criticize the science that's not unusual, but what about the relationship uh, between some of your studies and the actual Department of Public Health that have been a little bit critical as well? Well, I can't speak for the Colorado Department of Public Health um, and Environment. What I can say is uh, the science in our studies is sound. It's been published in the peer review literature. And in all our publications, we've made a thorough discussion of the limitations of our studies. And all of these types of studies do have limitations. And I'm wondering, are you worried that, say, by the time uh, you present lawmakers and regulators this conclusive proof, if there can be conclusive proof about health impacts of living near oil and gas operations, many people will have been harmed. Um, That is a concern, and I'm not sure what that conclusive proof Mm. would be. Um, If if you look at the um, how long it took to make that uh, very conclusive proof between cigarette smoking and lung cancer, that was quite a long time. Well, we've had on this show, and certainly a lot of people have been talking about different scientists using different ways of measuring these emissions and their impacts um, and multiple impacts. How about for your work? What's what's next? What what more do you want to ask and, and, and know about these impacts? 
Well, what we would really like to do, what's really missing right now is actually what people are being exposed to. So what are the concentrations of these chemicals in their home? And what is the, uh, can we look at some biomarkers of these chemicals in, in them, so in their blood and in their urine? And that would give us a better idea of exactly what they're being exposed to. And that's really what we'd like to know at this point. So I'm curious on that front. In fact, um, there was a recent study out of uh, NOAA, is it Brian McDonald? We had him on the show showing the high concentrations of chemicals from personal body products that form uh-huh. these plumes of VOCs as people leave their homes and start commuting. I'm wondering, like, how do you tease out what these chemicals are you're referring to? Of course, benzene is different from a skincare product, but right. the different ones that may be in our system, and how would you then trace? Right. So we would focus on the chemicals that we know to be associated with oil and gas development, so things like benzene and toluene. Um, and those are less likely to be in personal care products. In addition to that, we can look at populations living near the oil and gas sites and compare them to populations living further from the sites. And this involves uh, lots of people, so we're not. So when we look at things over the bridge, then um, we we start to um, one person that has a very high exposure to personal care products won't influence that average as much anymore. Right, or I'm thinking more also hmm. just exposed to vehicle exhaust and things. But you and vehicle exhaust, that. and in the in the risk assessment that we did, we we found we had samples that were collected very. Um, at busy intersections that had quite a big contribution from vehicle exhaust to the sample. And we still found that the highest benzene concentrations were in those samples collected nearest to the oil and gas facilities, higher than the samples that were collected at the busy intersections. So we just got a bit of time left, but I'm just curious, does this make you more concerned? Like, would you move into some of these areas in Weld County and elsewhere, or would you advise that people do not? Um, I'm not really comfortable making that type of recommendation. I think that uh, wherever we live, we all all have our um, mixture of risks around us, and that uh, I think that people need to understand, though, when they move near these oil and gas sites or living with them, these are additional risks that they may be um, taking on. However, if they live somewhere else, there may be another set of risks that they're exposed to. Well, thank you so much. We're out of time, but we hope to uh, continue on this topic. Thank you so much, Dr. Lisa McKenzie. Yes, thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks. Bye. And she's the lead author of a new study about the health impacts of living near oil and gas wells in Colorado. The paper was published earlier this month in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Dr. McKenzie is an assistant research professor at the Colorado School of Public Health at the University of Colorado Anschutz campus in the Environmental and Occupational Health Department. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. And thanks to you, Dan Glick. How on Earth contributor for hosting with me. My pleasure. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Hugh Tracy. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Glick. Happy Tax Day. <laughs>